0: The first service of the year. We started uh, a year ago in Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26 this morning. And really what we've been seeing over these last couple of weeks is we've been seeing miracle after miracle and really confirmation after confirmation of who Jesus Christ truly is. Now, this isn't some first century guru or social revolutionary or just merely a good ethical Character or teacher in whom we should try to base our lives after now many of you no doubt remember the 90s and remember the WWJD fad that swept the nation, right? And it seemed like everybody jumped on board. There was coffee mugs bracelets everything uh, For you to be able to purchase to express your solidarity with WWJD and in case you want to relive the 90s uh, There's still 2150 various items on Amazon for you to go purchase But the problem with that whole movement is that no one actually really knew what Jesus did because they had never read about him. And ultimately what they did was kind of create a God of their own making based on what their notions of who Jesus was. But not only they couldn't tell you what Jesus did or would do, but they couldn't tell you who he truly was. And that's what we're seeing here as Luke is laying out for us. But the beloved physician is showing us some evidence which we must continually confront ourselves with and acknowledge. And that evidence is that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He's not merely a man in whom God worked his powers through mightily. He's not an apparition that floated around and appeared to have taken on flesh. And there is a whole methodology, there's a whole systematic theology of of people who held that position. He's not just merely a good teacher or a rabbi. He's not a Galilean miracle worker. But Christ is the express image of his person. He is the fullness of deity who dwells in bodily form. He is the word who was in the beginning was with God and was God. And what should be of great comfort to all of us is that he was Emmanuel, God with us. And as we're going to see in just a little bit, this is exactly what the religious leaders of the day are going to fail to recognize. So I invite you to stand with me if you're able to for the reading of God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 5, looking at verses 17 through 26. We're going to spend a couple weeks here. But Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, God's Word says this, one day he was teaching And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down Through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that it brings to our lives. And Lord, as we start a new year and we long to start things anew when that calendar strikes January 1st, Help our hearts to be desirous of spending time and communing with you through your holy word. Give us the strength, Lord. Help us to be disciplined in our minds and our hearts to seek after you. And Father, we do thank you for this time. We just pray that it would bring much honor and glory to your great name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've got to lay a little bit of a foundation to get where we need to go this week and the next. And it really starts out in verse 17 of our text where it says, One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now, straight away here, Luke establishes us for us that he's doing one of the things which he has become known for in this particular day, and that he is teaching. The specific time is just one day, and the place or the location is not mentioned here either. But by way of Mark chapter 2, we know that this is in Capernaum, and that Jesus is home, which more than likely could be Peter's home. But Luke isn't necessarily so wrapped, in those, wrapped up in those details here. But what he is emphasizing is is, uh, that his teaching is so authoritative, it is so sound that people are beginning to come from all, all over to hear what he has to say. And this is really the heartbeat of what Jesus came to do, right? We saw that when he read from Isaiah back in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, it says that he came to preach the gospel and to proclaim release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. Now, he would heal some of those who were physically blind, but what is intended here is that he would give recovery of their sight to their blindness they have of their own sinful state by way of preaching the gospel to them. Isn't it true that when you ask some random person off the street, and you say, would you go to heaven if you died right now? What do they typically tell you? They say, yes, because I'm basically a good person, right? They're depending upon the cosmic scales of justice that their good deeds hopefully outweigh the bad. But if we would take that same imagery and use it as an example, and if we place our good deeds that you do in your entire lifetime, and you put them on one side of the scale and you take God's righteous demands for absolute holiness to be able to come into His presence, and you put that on the other side of the scale, all the good deeds you've ever done in your entire life, no matter how many and no matter how great, are not even going to budget. But humanity is absolutely blind to how truly sinful they are in comparison to the radiance And the beauty and the holiness of the glory of God. And although Lady Justice is sitting at our courthouse on top of that building with her blindfold on, indicating that she's impartial and that she's no respecter of persons, our God does not have such a limitation. In fact, He sees you where it counts the most, He sees your heart. That's why Proverbs 4:23 says we are to watch our heart for out of it springs or flows the springs of life. That is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5 when he tells us that murder originates in the heart with hatred and that adultery originates in the heart with lust. But here Jesus is coming and exposing men's hearts by preaching and teaching and proclaiming and his mission here was not simply to be just a healer. The healing, healings, all they did was confirm his message. They were proof of the authority that he possessed, as we'll see this in a little bit. And if you think about it, that's what a whole lot of modern-day churches are looking for today. They can't stomach to have God's Word preached and proclaimed, but do, man, do they ever want to see the shock and they want to see the awe. They want to have this miraculous Things going on and people supposedly getting knocked over by the Holy Spirit and convulsing on the ground and all sorts of unbiblical nonsense. They want to assault your senses with the right combination of lights and smoke and sound and help you validate that God moved in your midst and thus validate that you had an authentic worship experience. But the miraculous and the healings confirmed what Jesus was saying. They were the fruit of his ministry. they weren 't the root of it. But the authority by which he is teaching is starting to draw this crowd from far and wide, because we see this in verse 17. It says that people were coming from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now, if you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago, in Galilee alone, there were some two hundred forty cities and towns and villages, and so And the point of this is, is not that a representative from every single town is there, but that people from far and wide are coming, all over from Galilee had heard of him, and they are coming in droves to hear what he has to say. But now he's also got the attention of the region of Judea. If you remember, we have Galilee in the north, we have Samaria, and then we have Judea, where Jerusalem is located. And that is the hub of all Jewish religious life. He's on their radar now. And that's where we come to get introduced to some new characters in the Bible, and that is the Pharisees. It says that some Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. So, just like as we're reading through the Old Testament and we go into the New we got baptism, we got synagogues, we got these new concepts or this new group that's formed during the intertestamental period. We need to say lay a foundation as to where these guys came from. Who were they? What did they, what did they exactly do? Because we are going to run into these guys again and again and again throughout Luke. So, I'm going to give you a couple hundred years of Israel's history to establish where they came from, and I'm going to try to do it as brief as I can. First of all, if you remember, Judah had been destroyed in 586 BC. They had been taken captive by the Babylonians and taken away from their homeland. When we end in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we're at about 424 BC. And during that time, Israel is now ruled by the Persian Empire, and they did that for about 200 years. The Persians granted some release for the Jews to come back into their homeland, but as they do, they're coming back with a new language, and that language is Aramaic. We see that with Jesus when he heals Jairus' daughter. He tells her in uh, Mark 541, Talithiakum, that's Aramaic. Now, in about the 330s B.C., the Persian king Darius III is conquered by someone whose name that most of you are probably familiar with and have heard of, and that is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was 20 years old when he became king of Greece, and now the Greeks have conquered the Persians. Now, Alexander, he was highly influential on the Jewish people, but not in a good way. He introduced Greek culture, which is called Hellenism. Hellenism was not monotheistic like the Jews were with their culture and heritage. Instead, they were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped many gods. And many of you are familiar with those terms and have seen movies and things such as Zeus and Poseidon and Artemis and all those many, many others. But the Greek philosophers also came in and they attempted to explain the origins of the universe and the meaning of life through the teachings of people like Plato and Socrates, and Aristotle. All of this wasn't merely a mental academic exercise, but essentially it was a religious attempt to, through human reason, to try to explain the world with which we live in. They also allowed foods that were forbidden by Jewish law to be eaten, and Greek theater often presented questionable moral ideas to be presented in the form of art. Sounds like a lot like our Hollywood, doesn't it? And Alexander is also responsible for introducing Koine Greek, a new language, right? Koine simply means common. It's common Greek. And he did this because as he conquered peoples, he conquered armies in in different uh, countries, he needed a way to be able to communicate with those people as he brought them into his own army, and so he developed Koine Greek. It's the language, by the way, which our New Testament is written. But although Alexander's conquests were large, extending from Greece all the way over to India, down through Israel and into Africa, northern Africa, it only lasted for about 10 years. But yet his attempt to introduce Greek Hellenistic culture into the Jewish culture was, to say the least, pretty effective. Some Jews rejected it, But others accepted Hellenism, and ultimately, this created this cultural conflict. One of those groups that ended up accepting it is the Samaritans. And this is why the Jews would end up hating the Samaritans, because they embraced that Greek culture. Now, after Alexander died, his vast kingdom is is divided up between his four generals. He didn't have an heir. He didn't have no hair, but he had no heir. He had no children by which to give his kingdom to, and he divides it up to four generals. And the two generals we need to be concerned with, with relation to Israel, is Ptolemy and the Seleucids. Ptolemy reigned out of Egypt in Alexandria, the Seleucids in Mesopotamia and Syria. Now, the Sadducees, which we'll come to know later, are really birthed at this point because they were essentially rich landowners, and they bought their way into that high priestly position. They would come into that position by taking a bribe, and they went to Ptolemies and said, uh, let us have this spot, and he said, hey, give me some cash, it's yours. And what they did was they took a religious position, the high priest, and they turned it into a political one, and eventually, they didn't need to pay the ruler anymore, Because all they did was take whatever the ruler wanted to happen, and they sold it to the people as the will of God for their life. But the Ptolemies, and then later the Seleucids, and then finally the Roman rulers, would all see this position as high priest as their right to appoint it. And a Sadducee would accept and occupy that position. But the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, they wanted control for Israel. They wanted it for defensive purposes and for taxes, and eventually, in about 198 BC, after years and years and years of conflict, the Seleucids finally did that. And so they started to gradually increase the taxes on the Jews, but then they also forcefully pushed Hellenistic culture on them as well. Now, it's during this time, and this history is absolutely fascinating, we really start to see other Jewish groups start to emerge in rebellion to this forced Hellenism. And the line in the sand is literally going to be drawn and be crossed by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was the reigning Seleucid king in about 168 BC. Now, while he's down in Egypt and he's trying to expand his control down there, uh, he is, he's trying to defeat the Romans. And literally, the line in the sand, as we come to know that term, is going to be done right here. Antiochus uh, Epiphanes goes down into Africa. He's about ready to conquer, but he meets this Roman uh, governor. And the Roman governor says, takes a line in the sand and draws it around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he said, if you cross that line... The entire Roman cohort will be on you. You're going to be against war against the entire Roman nation if you cross that line. Antiochus Epiphanes says, well, let me consult my my people and see what we want to do. And he said, you step out of the circle, consider yourself at war. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes says, you know what? We'll back up. Well, while he's down there in Africa messing around, he's got to make haste back to Israel because there's an uprising that's brewing. And so when he returns to Israel to take care of this uprising, he comes back with a vengeance. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Antiochus comes back into the city and he's pretending peace. But as soon as he's inside the city limits, he sacks Jerusalem on, of all days, the Sabbath. He kills thousands and thousands of men, women, and children. He burns buildings. He forbids all Jewish worship. And to top all that, he gets three strikes drawn against him. He goes into the Jewish temple, which is a no-no. He erects an altar to the Greek god Zeus. Two strikes. And then the third strike is Antiochus Epiphanes takes a pig, which is unclean by the Jews and sacrifices it on the altar to the god Zeus. Now, a year later, in 167 B.C., there's going to be this Jewish priest named Matthias. And Matthias is told to offer a pagan sacrifice to which he refuses. Then another Jewish young apostate, he steps in and he says, I'll do it. Now, Matthias, when he sees this, He's had enough. You think about those expendable crewmen on Star Wars? That's what Matthias sees this guy as, right? He takes and he kills this young Jewish apostate, he kills the representative of Antiochus there, and he begins the uprising of revolt against the Seleucids. This is where we would change from passivity to active military engagement. This is the dividing line. Now, Matthias, he's going to die about a year later, but he hands the reins to his son, and his son's name is Judas. Judas has a strong masculine nickname. He's nicknamed the Hammer, right? Judas Maccabeus, right? Really manly. I love that nickname. Now, he would be joined in his fight against the Seleucids with a group called the Hasidim. And so by 164 B.C., they completely capture and they cleanse the temple, and then they hold an eight-day feast and celebration of it. Many of you are familiar with that feast. It's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a celebration of that cleansing and regaining of the temple. But it's here where the Pharisees are said to have originated, because in about 142 B.C., the Seleucids are completely driven out of Israel, and the Jews would experience about 80 years of independence. Now, this is the first time for, since about 722 B.C. But as the nation of Israel gained its independence, albeit temporal, it was time to get back to the monotheism and get away from the syncretistic practices that Judaism had suffered under the introduction of Hellenism. And so these Pharisees, whose name, by the way, means separated ones, they were separated from Hellenistic culture, and they tried to stay away from the syncretism that was brought in. They went to the synagogues, remember we talked about those, they started to rebuild those, and they had good intentions in wanting to try to drive people back to the law of God to see spiritual renewal, but it was flawed with two critical flaws. The first one is that the Pharisees created this massive complex oral law called the Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A-H. And basically the Mishnah was a running commentary on the Torah, or the first five books of Moses. Some of us are familiar with the Pentateuch, or the, literally the five scrolls. But if we consider that the Torah itself has about 613 commandments, and then you take on, so that's the written law, you take on another uh, whole level of, of commentary about how are you supposed to do that. Well, let me define what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath starts on this day. It's at this time. You can do this. You can carry five pounds of wood, but you can't carry six. It is endless legalism after legalism. And if, as I was studying this, the Mishnah, there's a commentary on the Torah. There's a commentary on that commentary. It's unending. And so if you were an everyday run-of-the-mill Jew you had a lot of difficulty trying to follow it. It was a heavy, heavy burden. Those of you who have small businesses or you try to do your own taxes, you can probably relate just a little bit with this because it's an enormous, complex system with rule upon rule. But because it was this complicated system, we see in our text this second group we see there, and that's called the teachers of the law. These guys were the lawyers. They are the ones who specialize in interpreting and applying the law. Most commonly in the New Testament, we're going to see them identified as scribes. It's the same people. But they were professional scholars of the Torah and the Mishnah. But the second problem with the Pharisees And the biggest problem that Jesus Christ is going to address was in that their drive for spiritual renewal, in their passion and their zeal for God, it ended up becoming just an external means of holiness. They believed that if you did certain things, it would make you right with God. Your outward actions mattered more than your inward attitudes. And that is really what led, this, uh, led to hypocrisy on the part of the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to call them exactly that. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Basically, what he was telling them there is you're taking this garden herb that you grow on your kitchen counter, and you're taking these teeny tiny little seeds, and you're dividing them up and giving them that one-tenth that you owe to God. But then you turn around and you're neglecting the fact that you should be uh, cognizant of basic human ethics, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. They were proud of the fact that they took the one-tenth of those seeds. But then they would ignore anybody who's suffering, anyone who had needed mercy. But we have to be cautious of this ourselves, do we not? There is a tendency when we give monies to a missionary or a certain cause that we sense a feel of accomplishment before God. There can be a, a sense of that when we attend church, that we can check it off as our list of to-dos for the week. We gave money to our church. We told somebody we'd pray for them. We served the church in some capacity. We read some scripture throughout the week. We had devotions for ourselves or a couple times with our kids this week. And to be sure, this merely outward expression of our faith can be easy to do, and we can view them as an offering to God. We can turn on and off our piety like a switch, and we can do things out of sheer duty. But when we get down to brass tacks, what really matters before the eyes of our omniscient God is that we are dutiful to guard our heart in delighting in Him. Do you see communion with God in prayer as a joy and a delight? Do you wake up on Sunday morning looking to worship God corporately as a church with zeal and anticipation? Do you give of your time and of your money to the things of God and the expansion of God's kingdom with joy? Do you look at your time in God's Word as a feasting for your soul. When you even just think about the mercy of God, or the love of God, or the holiness of God, or the perfection of God throughout your week, does it make your heart sing with gladness and thanksgiving? How is your heart this morning? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul... Pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Does this describe the state of your soul right now? Is this really a legitimate comparison for you that you long for God like a thirsty deer longs for water? Are you merely honoring God with your lips, yet your heart is far from Him? This was the Pharisees. They were depending on their outward works of the law and their perception of piety to save them. They were walking by sight and not by faith. And the message of the gospel that Jesus is going to preach to them is going to be scandalous to them. The message of the gospel is not that God saves anyone based upon the works of the law. It's not that salvation is given to people who earn it. It's not that salvation is for people who are good enough or holy enough or righteous enough. It's it's not for people who have enough uh, merit badges earned on their Awana vest. But he gives salvation to those who are ungodly and unrighteous, who believe in Jesus Christ and repent. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. He didn't die for the self-righteous, impenitent Pharisees who thought they had it all together. He didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. So we have Jesus' teaching the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are from all over Judea and Galilee are there, and it says that the power of the Lord was present for Him to perform healing. Now this is just a continual reaffirmation that Jesus did whatever the Father willed Him to do as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Jesus would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey perfectly the will of the Father. John 5.19 says, Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And we've seen this throughout Luke already when he's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's baptized and he has the Holy Spirit descend upon him. He's led into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit to battle Satan in chapter 4. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And so here, he's about to perform healing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have this bizarre scene here as this crowded house that starts to unfold in front of us. In verses 18 and 19, it says... And some men were carrying on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So straight away, we're told that this is a packed house, and it is so packed that this paralyzed man who's been carried on this stretcher and his friends, they can't even get close to Jesus. Mark chapter 2 tells us that there are four friends carrying him. But even though they can't get in, his friends aren't going to let up in taking this man to Jesus Christ. These are good friends to have. These are the kind of friends you want to have. And so we can imagine these five guys trying to move in close and nobody's moving. And it's not like it's a single file line where if one or two people move out of the way, you're going to be able to get in there because they're carrying this paralyzed man on a stretcher. And let me tell you from experience, trying to carry anyone at least on a narrow, long backboard through a door is difficult at best. But it's not merely the size of the party that's trying to get in that's the issue We've also got these Pharisees and these teachers of the law there standing around waiting to just pounce on Jesus for any misspoken word. And you can be sure they are not going to move for some paralyzed man and his four compadres, right? They're not giving up their seat. They've come in from far and wide to hear this guy. And not only that, the Pharisees would look upon that man's physical condition and see it to be a direct result of sin, therefore, they didn't want to have anything to do with this guy. Even the disciples in John chapter nine would ask if the blind beggar that they had just passed—excuse me, just passed by—was blind because of either his sin or his parents' sin. But Jesus answered and it says, "No, it's neither. But it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him." So these friends of theirs. This man, this paralyzed man, they go for plan B. They're going to go up to the roof, and they're going to dig a hole through the roof and let him down. It is an ingenious plan. They've got to dig through this roof, and then they're going to have some ropes to be able to tie onto this stretcher to lower this paralyzed man down to the ground without dropping their buddy, right? And so that's what they do. they lower him down, this paralytic ends up right in the middle of the crowd, and more importantly and more dramatically, he's right in front of Jesus. Now, what drove these men to be so persistent in gaining access to Christ? What motivated them to labor so hard into getting a hearing before Jesus? The first part of verse 20 tells us where it says, Seeing their faith. Here is Jesus Christ acknowledging the faith of these men. He knew exactly what was in their hearts. He did not need anyone to testify as to what was in their hearts. He knew that they had faith in himself. Now, faith is not just some uh, fanciful hope or longing that you hope to occur in the future, but faith is an absolute confidence and a certainty. We might better understand uh, it to be trust in our modern understanding, because when we tend to think of faith, we tend to think about something that we, uh, is going to go on with evidence to the contrary, and we're told, oh, you just need to have faith. It looks bad for you, but just have faith. But trust is closer to what's being implied here in the Scriptures when referring to faith. Trust is like having a friend, a close friend that you know, and have known for years and years, and the more you get to know them, the more you see them, them do what they say, you have trust in that person. You have faith. And the faith is not something that we rely on merely with our senses. The utter trust and confidence in Jesus was displayed by the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, looking for Jesus to heal his servant. And he told Jesus, just say the word and he will be healed. It's at that point that Jesus marvels and says, I have not found anyone with such great faith in all of Israel. The centurion had absolute confidence. He had a resolute faith that Jesus Christ was all that he heard him to be. So it was with these five men who broke through the roof of this house. They trusted in Jesus Christ with such an abandon, they are willing to go to extreme measures to get to Him. They abandoned all pretext of pride. They didn't let the Pharisees discourage them. They were willing to do whatever it took to have their friend healed by Jesus. So this morning, as you think about the sin in your life, the sin that seems to paralyze and plague you more often than not, it seems like. I don't care if it's lying or coveting or lust or pride, whatever the chink in your armor is. What I want to know is, are you trusting in faith that Jesus can heal you from that sin? Or are you placing your confidence in in your strength, and in your might, that maybe just someday I'll be able to overcome it. Now, I'm not advocating let go and let God up here, okay? But I'm, what I am telling you is that even though the duty to battle against sin belongs to us, the power belongs to God. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you trusting in that power this morning? Are you depending upon the Holy Spirit for your daily quickening? Let's pray. Father, let us just trust wholly on you for every good and perfect gift because they come down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. Lord, many of us are tired Many of us are weak and wearied by sin. And though you have placed the duty upon us to be killing sin or it will be killing us, let us look to you for that strength because it's only through your strength that we can do such things. Father, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Let us have the faith of the Levitical priest who, as they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, it says that they were up to their knees in water before that water was parted. Lord, too, often when we see hardship and adversity, we turn back. When we don't see things going our way, we stop and recluse and back up. But Lord, help us to march forward. Help us to attempt great things for you and for your name, whether it be sharing the gospel, whether it be going on the mission field, whether it be mentoring a younger person, let us do this all for the glory of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time you have given us. You are so gracious and merciful to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.